If you're a founder building a company, you're going to eventually have to start hiring executives to help you scale. The people you bring into your leadership team can make or break your startup. I'm Nigel Robinson with Build Talent, and in each episode, we'll be speaking with a founder or expert as we discuss the art and science of hiring leaders, why it matters, and how you can keep up. Welcome to the Gradients Podcast. Thank you for joining us, Dan. Welcome to the show. This is the Gradients Podcast. Daniel Chen is a multiple-time founder. We actually worked together during my time at A16Z, where he was a software engineer there, working on all kinds of secret things that I had no insight into. From there, he went and founded a company that was Open Token. This was early, relatively early in the crypto days. Actually, it was founded, I think, during what people were calling the crypto winter, if I'm remembering that right. He then goes on to found another company, Hero.app, that's a software plugin that increases Salesforce productivity, has a successful exit from that into People AI, and is now an entrepreneur in residence at Sequoia Capital. I will give the caveat for him that nothing he says here today is an official statement of Sequoia's and does not necessarily reflect their views. But, but yeah, thanks for joining us, Daniel. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Super happy to be here. Definitely. I love all you're doing with the podcast and yeah, happy to chat. So when I'm where we should start, I think, is just giving a little background of how you even find yourself as a software developer, because I know you have a pretty interesting route. But yeah, how do you like find yourself interested in computer science? How do you find yourself at Andreessen Horowitz around that time? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So I did my undergrad at Caltech. Originally studied computational neuroscience, did that for two years, and then did a summer internship at uh, Professor Christoph Koch's lab, specifically focused on memory and modeling neurons, and realized that I like the computational part of computational neuroscience much more than the neuroscience parts. And this was further solidified when I had to start doing wet labs and measuring electron voltages and things like that. And ended up uh, deciding to switch to computer science my junior year and then tacked on in business econ major uh, senior year. I was connected to Andreessen Horowitz actually completely uh, randomly. I was just taking programming tests at the time and one of my friends had sent me a programming test that Balaji Srinivasan, one of the GPs, one of the newer GPs at A16Z at the time, had tweeted out and he posted on Hacker News. And I thought, oh, this might be a fun thing to take a stab at, try to solve. And did it, uh, submitted it, didn't really know anything about A16Z or VC or anything. was just trying to do fun programming tests to test my metal and ended up getting a call back. So then I started uh, researching into VC a little bit more, learned about the history of the firm, and uh, you know decided it was a good place to be. So I was fortunate enough to be hired through that process. Wow. And this, I was super early too in A16Z. This is like before kind of all the early unicorns, I think, right? This is like before Lyft, before GitHub, before Reddit. It was around that time. So this is 2014. And I remember distinctly um, joining the five-year anniversary party shortly after I officially started there. And Ben was doing the ice bucket challenge with like interns and it was a really good time. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it was a good time to be part of the firm. Yeah, definitely a moment in history for sure. And so you are kind of thrust into this VC world, this startup world. 
what were some of the things that really stuck with you that you like kind of carried in with you? Because like, did you kind of have an idea of like, I want to start a business before being at A16Z or was that kind of embedded over your time there? Yeah, I think I always had some entrepreneurial tendencies. I think VC solidified that for me. I remember at the time thinking, hey, there might be two paths down this one. I might go down the investor side. And you know, A16Z is obviously a very good place to do that. But also, I think I was a little bit more drawn to the builder side, especially being kind of an engineer by background. And the more that I met with various companies, both within the Andreessen portfolio and companies that would pitch us, the more that I was inspired by all the cool things that they were building. So I think at a certain point, it was more of a matter of when, not if. So it was just a matter of kind of like finding the right idea and running with it. Right. And so, okay. And so that brings us to the next question. Like what is going on in your life, in your mind, when you first conceive of Open Token, when you decide that not only is this the thing, but now is the time for this thing? Yeah. Yeah. This is a pretty interesting story that I don't really get to tell that much. So I remember this distinctly. I remember hearing about ICOs. And just for a little bit of context, OpenToken was an ICO platform, kind of rose during the ICO boom. And then I ended up not surviving the following crypto winter, but definitely had a lot of interesting insights and learnings from that entire experience. And I remember hearing about ICOs kind of during uh, summer of 2017, looking into them a little bit more. And then I remember deciding like, hey, the one thing that's missing in all of this is it's just not easy for users to participate and do the research, but then also kind of eventually send money to these things, kind of track their participation, uh, learn more about the various projects and whatnot. So I felt like it'd be something that'd be very, very straightforward to build. So on a Wednesday, ended up starting trying to build a proof of concept and then got it spun up in around two days, showed it to a friend of mine on a Friday. And then um, he ended up setting up a meeting for myself and uh, Paul Varadatake, who ended up being our lead investor. So Paul from Pantera. And that kind of bootstraps the entire uh, conversation around making this a real business and not just a prototype. Wow. So you weren't even like, oh, let me go show this to some investor. You showed it to a friend and the friend just thought it was cool enough to take it that seriously and, and make that next step for you. Yeah. Yeah. And the initial conversation that I had with Paul was actually very interesting. So it was not just me and him and my friends. There's also uh, Charlie Noyes, who was an intern at Pantera at the time and ended up uh, starting Paradigm with Matt and Fred. And then a mutual friend of ours, his name is Michael C. And he was early Google on the legal side and ended up helping us out quite a bit, you know, navigating regulation and stuff like that. And the conversation was kind of generally high-level crypto. And I remember some way, sometime midway through the meeting, us talking about ICOs and the problems that were in the space at the time. And I thought it was a good opportunity to kind of show them what I'd built. So I remember like describing it at a high level and uh, just like getting blank stares from both Paul and Charlie. And then as soon as I plugged my computer in and showed them the proof of concept, it just immediately clicked. Wow. And then you could see the change in like level of interest. For sure. They're like, take my money, please. <laughs> so wait. So all right. So you get the excitement. 
are you in your mind, are you already at the place in this meeting where like, I'm going to take this on, I'm going to start this business, whether these are my investors or not, kind of what's going on in your mind? Because that's just two days, basically time or something, maybe a week or something. Yeah. Yeah. I was very excited about it. And I'd love to say like 100% yes, I was all in. I was committed to this kind of passion project. But honestly, I think at the time I was still thinking about it, right? Because Mm. when you're kind of at a venture firm, you get exposed to so many great ideas that the one that you're thinking about right now might be fleeting, right? You might be incredibly excited about it for maybe a week, two weeks, but you have no idea the long-term sustainability of such an idea unless you do a little bit more research and navigate the ideas. So definitely their levels of interest was a strong vote of confidence and made me more excited about the idea as a whole. But I think it wasn't until I did uh, quite a bit more deep diving into the idea where I finally had a conviction that like, hey, this is an actual problem to be solving in the space. Word. Okay. So you have investor interest. You finally reach your own conviction on it. What is next? Like in your mind, as far as like, all right, I have this prototype. I have some amount of, of funding or kind of investors on the line. How do you move from that to kind of creating the organization itself from a people perspective? Yeah. Yeah. So the first person who joined on was Andrew. So this is the co-founder that ended up that originally introduced me to Pantera. After that first meeting, uh, he pulled me aside afterwards. He's like, Hey, I can tell you're super interested. I'm in like, how do you want to move forward with this? And I think immediately afterwards, I was like, Hey, I need more people to help build this out with me. And honestly, a lot of it was tapping personal networks, right? So Mm. I had a very talented engineer friends who at the time was uh, VP of engineering at comma.ai, one of Andreessen's portfolio companies. And I'd known him since the college days and very highly respected his technical abilities. So for him, it was kind of a long process of, I think, first gauging whether or not he was interested in starting a company at all. And then um, kind of selling him on the crypto space because I think, you know, as engineers, we all lean slightly skeptical of what is the like real value being created here. So kind of had to walk with him through that process. And then obviously he had a very good opportunity at the time. So I think it was just like having conversations with him, getting him comfortable with the idea. And then, you know, eventually all the stars aligned and he ended up coming up, coming on board. And then I think for the rest of the team, it was more so, I, it was more of the same. It was those conversations where you slowly warm them up to the idea. And again, these are friends in my personal network. And yeah, just kind of getting them more comfortable with the idea and then eventually converting them. Yeah. So like the recruiting the co-founder part just kind of was easy. He's like, let me show my friend Andrew this thing. And he's like, I'm in. I'm the I'm your co-founder. <laughs> well, so the funny thing is, there were several co-founders. So Michael okay. Vizio is also a co-founder. And then probably a lesser known one, Brian Pellegrino from Layer Zero Labs. He was also a co-founder of the company, although probably a lesser extent in terms of you know, day-to-day operational activities and overall involvement with the company. But he was still kind of very instrumental in helping us out. Yeah, this is interesting. So you guys formed like a little quartet. And how do you, I guess, And it sounds like all of you come from technical backgrounds, like basically a quartet of of software engineers, but you're kind of maybe the the visionary, you're the one who maybe is the most domain expertise, let's say. How do you start thinking about the separation of powers in a situation like that? Did everybody kind of already know their stations or? 
Yeah, I think it was fairly clear based on our backgrounds. Michael is going to be the CTO. I was going to be the CEO. Brian definitely is very deep in crypto already and brought on a very strong network, Andrew as well. So I think we just kind of naturally filled out the roles uh, based on our personal strengths. Like I know there were like some internal conversations around, hey, like who's going to do what? And at the end of the day, like what are the specific titles going to be and how are the responsibilities actually going to be set up? And, you know, without getting too deep into the weeds, we did have like, questions, discussions, even arguments at times about how these roles were going to be split up. But I think eventually we came to something that made a lot of sense. Uh, And so how big does the team get? You're on, it looks like it's a two-year run, right? How big do you guys get before uh, having a closed shop? Yeah, yeah. So we got to around probably eight people at the max. And uh, we didn't close shop, actually. So we ended up I mean, one of the things that I kind of pride ourselves on is we didn't compete on metrics like headcounts and these kind of high-level KPIs that maybe VCs and like vanity metrics that a lot of startup founders go for. It was kind of funny and maybe a little bit awkward during the hiring process where, quite honestly, between myself and Michael, the CTO, we built out the entire initial version of the product. And we did this in a couple of months and it works well enough where we were able to like actually be able to run the product at scale. And we felt like we needed to hire engineers <laughs> just because we like that's part of building a software business is like hiring right. a core product and engineering team. But it was always a little bit tricky during those conversations where eventually, you know, they'd ask, hey, what's your product roadmap? What are we going to do? And I mean, quite honestly, I didn't have the best answers for these guys because a lot of the core product is already built out. And then at that point, it's primarily like a BD slash regulatory motion that we're focused almost entirely on. So one of the things that we ended up doing quite a bit was aggressive cash flow management. So really limiting the amount of people that we hired to people who were absolutely necessary to grow out the product. Didn't build out a massive engineering team, but Michael got a few more hires. And yeah, probably ended up with at most eight people during the height of it. And then as we had to kind of pivot out of crypto, and that's like an entirely different story, ended up uh, winding down to just uh, myself and Morgan, who ended up joining Open Token partway through. So I, so yeah, I, I can tell the story about that as well if you're interested. Yeah, yeah, I am interested, but I want to know the the part about like you mentioned, you're very careful about hiring. What was important to you about those hires? You know, especially because you're trying to keep it tight. What are the things that obviously there's like a technical competence that you're going for, but what are the other things that you were looking for that made yeah the criteria that made those hires meaningful? Yeah, I would say probably the ability to gel well with the team to be able to understand the core mission, but that mission being kind of democratizing access to this new alternative asset class that previously was not available to people as a whole. And I think also just we had a very specific culture, a little bit more engineering driven, a little bit more heads down. And being able to kind of mesh well with all of the different strong personalities was incredibly important. Yeah, yeah. I think I talked to one founder who was like, diversity is fantastic, but early on, you actually want like homogeneity. Like you want everybody to be more alike than different at the beginning because it just like makes everything easier, faster. Like 
I don't know. What do you think of that? I guess. Yeah, I think it's like you want homogeneity in certain ways, right? So you want homogeneity in terms of like overall mission alignments. You want homogeneity in terms of just like being able to work well with everyone. So like everybody should be at least like some base level of agreeable, right? right? But I think you also want a lack of homogeneity in terms of like where do various people excel, right? So like for instance, hire for spikiness is a phrase that is commonly said. So yeah, I would say that it's it's a balance. So homogeneity where it is important to be aligned on the same things, but also you want diversity when it comes to things like skill sets and different experiences and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. So to confirm when you say spikiness is like someone who spikes in one area versus another kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. Got it, got it. So hiring for strengths as opposed to lack of weaknesses. Got it. No, I love that. I love that. That's a mentality we talk about a lot of like, are you looking to qualify someone? Or are you looking to disqualify someone? You know, are you hiring them for their strengths? Or are you not hiring them for their weaknesses kind of thing? Absolutely. Okay. And so, yeah, I am interested to hear this pivot story because it's like you have a working product, you have a tight team, and then crypto winner hits. What? How does the crypto winner hit this group? Like, is it like a are you totally blindsided by it? What is kind of the, what's happening at, at Open Token during this? Yeah, so I wouldn't say we were blindsided. We were kind of calling a bubble since the, I would say the top. So um, January of 2018, it just felt like everything was absolutely absurd. And we were starting to prepare for it in terms of, okay, we feel like this ICO market isn't sustainable. How do we adapt to it? What do we think long-term this is going to look like? I remember early on, we kind of had this idea of something that... I think it was Chris Berniski who popularized this called the Crypto J-Curve, hmm. where... It, I mean, it's it's like a nice heuristic for just saying that right now things are incredibly frothy and there's going to be a market correction, but long-term, the value that's created is going to be orders of magnitude greater. And we initially thought that for ICOs as fairly good projects, Brave, ZeroX and whatnot, were kind of going through this funding path. But then like quite honestly, the entire team got a little bit disillusioned just because it seemed like, especially kind of towards the winter of 2017, early 2018, people were using this as more of a kind of fundraising mechanism of last resorts. And maybe there's like this kind of adverse selection effects that was going on where maybe not necessarily the best companies were going down this path. And obviously, I think the the overall goal of the space is the exact opposite. And I think just based on the underlying dynamics of what was going on in the space became... like We knew the writing was on the wall. And we were just overall kind of skeptical that the ICO market was going to come back in the same way as was originally promised. So fairly early on, we started looking into what are adjacent markets that we can start moving into, potentially more on the fund side. And we worked quite a bit with our lead investors, Pantera. And honestly, huge props to them for being more than open and generous with their time. Sorry, slight aside, but people say time and time again, choose your investors based on value add and how they're going to help support you as a founder through your founder journey. because. It is such a challenging thing. And I think the most challenging thing that we experienced was having to go back to square one, Mm. which is basically like going back to the drawing board. So like 
going back to the days where I was like building prototypes, like before even showing it to an investor and having Pantera be incredibly supportive throughout that entire process, as opposed to just writing us off and uh, not helping us or being available or even worse, that meant a lot. And we wouldn't have gotten to uh, where we ended up without them. So yeah, I, I think that phase of it was particularly challenging, but we did have a lot of help and support um, through our lead investors and you know our other angels. And yeah, the transition kind of went slowly from, hey, can we do things that are crypto adjacent, right? So you know, potentially funds, things like that, to prediction markets. So Joey Krug, who is one of the CIOs of Pantera, co-founded a large crypto prediction market called Augur, one of the earliest Web3 applications, and just worked with them through that. But there's an interesting dynamic that happens during crypto bear markets. And it's that the user base ends up shifting into a completely different dynamic than during bull markets, bull runs. And what ends up happening is a majority of the people in the space, they're the kind of core crypto natives. And I would say that that's maybe 5 to 10% technologists who, like, honestly, outside of core dev tools, have really no need for any kind of product or service. And then you have the crypto degen kind of speculator types. And the products that we saw taking off in the crypto space at the time were like the FOMO 3Ds and the HXROs. And by the way, HXRO has an options trading platform now. And you know, they've completely changed and rebranded. And I think they're doing a lot of really amazing work there. But you know, at the time, it was kind of more of these zero-sum games that appealed to the kind of core crypto speculator group. So I think we also got a little disillusioned with that market and wanted to build products for like customers, like potentially actually paying customers. So after quite a bit of soul searching and quite a bit of internal turmoil, and a majority of the original team ended up leaving um, down to the point where it was only myself and my co-founder Morgan, we ended up... So Morgan, who was early in Open Token and then ended up uh, bringing him on as a co-founder for the new idea ended up arriving on the kind of enterprise SaaS, Salesforce, UI abstraction layer space. Interesting. So is Open Token pivots into what becomes the Hero app? Is that how the story goes? Yeah, yeah. It was a pivot. We ended up having to do some extra stuff on the kind of corporate legal entity side to make sure that there was sufficient separation. But at the end of the day, I uh, brought all the same stakeholders on board and started this company afresh. And uh, yeah, it ended up being like a core pivot of OpenTokens. Wow. So you really brought it full circle where like, all right, now not only are we back to prototyping the, the product itself, but then you're back to square one where it's like, all right, just me and my co-founder again too, and kind of starting the team all over again. How far along does Hero App get before the acquisition? Yeah. So we had launched a V1 of the products. We had actually quite a bit of usage. And one of our best metrics was uh, our like trailing 10-week retention was absurdly high at the time. And I remember double-checking Amplitude multiple times just to like, make sure that the numbers are correct. I thought it was a glitch. No, he's like, yeah. there's something wrong with this. <laughs> and when we started doing a little bit more like user research and discovery, we eventually started to understand why, which was... These sales reps weren't used to like Salesforce just wasn't the right experience for them. 
And as soon as we offer a product that is modern, fast, sleek, just like what you would normally expect out of a well-built web, product, web UI, all of a sudden the switch clicks on their ends and they become loyal and happy users of the product. And this was actually a fairly long process as well to get to that point where we had months of going through different ideas and kind of trying to find the right pain points that we wanted to build for. And then eventually, and you know, all credit to Morgan for this, right? Because at the time I was very averse to building anything that remotely resembled a spreadsheet. And hmm. spoiler alert, what ended up happening was you could think of Hero app as uh, Airtable on top of Salesforce. So it ended up being a spreadsheet. Wow. And Morgan, he kept on saying like, hey, let's just do a spreadsheet. Let's do a spreadsheet. And then you know, myself, a little bit more engineering oriented uh, thoughts like, hey, this is a deep rabbit hole that you don't want to go down. The whole like Google Sheets versus Excel kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So eventually, after like enough conversations with users who were getting more and more value out of these spreadsheet adjacent features that we started offering, eventually Morgan's like, "Hey, let's just do a spreadsheet." And uh, he's like, "We got to give the people what they want, Dan. <laughs> the people want a spreadsheet." Okay, and so is that like? Is it basically? You're the engineer and he's the product guy and y'all were just are y'all were just running it like that or Yeah, yeah. I would say that the way that we split it up was I was engineer and product and Morgan was BD and product. Got it. So we overlapped quite a bit on the product side. And then this was also a product that was a lot more complex to build from a UI perspective. So we definitely needed more hands on deck there and had a larger hiring funnel than for open token and whatnot. But yeah, he was primarily focused on customer outreach and user acquisition and optimizing the top of the funnel and things like that. Tell me more about the hiring funnel piece, because it sounds like the first product and even most of this product, you were kind of pretty much able to build it yourself. But I know that UI is not exactly like your bread and butter. I don't know that that maybe you would refer to yourself as like a front end specialist. So you're having to hire out a team now to like tackle these maybe more design elements. What was that process like of even like creating the funnel and then kind of, uh, yeah, assembling that early team? Because I feel like it's a totally different sell than Open Token at that point. Yeah, I think this was more of a product-based sell. And we were fortunate enough early on. I know you say I'm not like a UI engineer by backgrounds, but before we had a full-time front-end engineer, I was doing all of the front-end work. <laughs> and it was very instrumental to bring on a very good designer. Her name's Diane early on in the process and work directly with her where I uh, just very straightforward implementation of her mocks. And she was very, very thorough with them. So it was like very good guidelines that help us get out the door and start getting active users and customer feedback and iterating and all of that. Because I think one of the key things that we discovered through this process was the bar is so much higher for new products nowadays compared to maybe 10 years ago, where I know we've all heard 10x improvements and build an MVP. This is kind of like the Eric Reese lean startup kind of philosophy, where if you find that core problem and you build a solution that's 10x better than what people are currently using, then it doesn't matter how bad the UI is, they're going to come and start using it. I strongly believe that that no longer exists in the startup space. Like mm. the tooling has gotten so good and the products have gotten so good 
that the entry level is so much higher. And you see this in products like Figma and Linear, where they came out the gate and Superhuman, where they came out the gate with very good and well-polished products. And it's hard to even get feedback at all if you don't meet some level of base kind of polish and overall like good user experience. Wow. Yeah, no, I think I think we're seeing that too. Definitely, I feel like design is starting to have its day in tech. Like you see a lot more emphasis on bringing in strong design, no matter kind of what the space is. Absolutely. And you see this a lot in founding team composition nowadays, where a lot of the times they will have a designer as part of the founding team. Whereas back maybe 10 years ago, maybe it was like, you know, Airbnb and a couple of others that, you know, had designers as part of the founding team, but it was more of an outlier than anything. And so how big does the org get and how does the acquisition come about? I mean, you're kind of reluctantly building this spreadsheet that everybody loves. How does does that kind of come about? I mean, I would also say not reluctantly, right? Like I think as soon as we saw how much people loved using the actual spreadsheet core products, like we were all in, we're like, hey, this is actually the right interface. Let's just build it. Yeah, I would say that the the team ended up growing to maybe six or so people. So it wasn't massive. Okay. But we had enough traction and we had a strong enough product where we were um, getting ready to raise our A. And then... So literally, Morgan and I had reached out to our personal network. So we had like meetings in the book. We had a polished pitch deck. And so People AI, one of the Andreessen portfolio companies, reaches out to us to chat. And I don't know how much I can reveal about the deal process and all of that, but ended up being a very good outcome. And we're happy that we ended up uh, going with them. It's actually funny, a couple of weeks before PeopleAI reached out, so Morgan and I would always grab lunch. We'd walk along 3rd Street on the dog patch and get pizza at Long Bridge or something like that. And I remember sitting outside with him and we were chatting uh, just because like we were kind of coming off a high on building out the product and like getting some really positive user reviews. And I remember asking him specifically, so like, what would you sell at? <laughs> like, right. what, what would the overall... And, and sorry if this comes off a little bit uh, crass or whatnot, but we had like a real conversation around like, hey, if an offer comes in, uh, what are the terms that we take? And we had a number going in. So we, like, <laughs> we I think we we're like a little bit prepared for the conversation, but also not in that it just seemed like funny coincidence that we were just talking about it a couple of weeks earlier. And then, you know, all of a sudden out of the blue, people I reaches out and they preempt our our funding grants. Wow. So you were ready to just like, all right, raise another round, build this out to the next level. And then they swooped in. That was the the magic with the magic number. (laughs) That's right. Okay. So now you're on the other side of this like wild ride. You know, you went through the pivot, you went through literally like a whole cyclical, like all the way back to the beginning. And then again to the exit. Now you're at Sequoia. I'm interested to hear more about your thoughts about kind of the the crypto industry and also just like looking backward, the advice that you would give to Dan on his first attempt. Yeah, I'd say as far as the advice goes and, you know, can talk about the crypto stuff separately because a lot of thoughts there. Yeah, yeah. I would say just keep pushing through. Because everybody says this, but you don't actually internalize this until you go through it. But doing a startup is hard. And I would say 
it just amplifies the emotional highs and lows. Because if you're doing your own thing, you're the only person at the end of the day, you're the person who cares about what you're doing. And you're the person who kind of has to push it through. And that just makes the best of days that much better, but it also makes the worst of days that much worse. So there's a lot of struggle, emotional turmoil. And I think at the end of the day, one of the best things that you can do as a founder is just to believe in yourself, believe in the team, and kind of push yourself all the way through. Another thing that I would say is to just always be positive. Always be positive that you know there's light at the end of the tunnel, that you're going to make it through, that even if the market's bad or you know, you're struggling to find users or key employee leaves or whatnot, that there's always light at the end of the tunnel and that things will get better. And as a founder, it is your job to convey that to the rest of your team. Like It all stems from you. So I would say that just every day, wake up with that mindset, wake up with that mentality and be positive. And that at the end of the day, that will kind of reap dividends as it spreads to the rest of the team. Yeah, that resilience is is key. We hear that a lot. Do you think that that's something that you had built into you or is that something you think you developed over the journey? Like how did you make how did you kind of uh, muster that up, you know? I would say that it is a growing process for me. So, sure. it's something that I have admired in a lot of my fellow founder colleagues. I'd say Brian from Layer 0 is probably one of the best that I know of at this. So I'm still learning, quite honestly. Yeah. And you know, looking to him and other founder friends in my network as inspiration. But it's a process and it's a journey. And it's something that, you know, quite honestly doesn't come naturally to me. But it's just something that every day you just work on, you think of, put in the back of your mind. And eventually over years of this, you get better and better. Right. Like once you're in it, it's an imperative. It's like now it's an existential, like you must be resilient or else type of thing. <laughs> Okay. So yeah, switching gears. Now that you you you've been in crypto very early, early crypto business, survived the crypto winter. Now the the space is kind of picking up again. We're seeing incredible rounds being raised by companies, by firms to play their hand. What is kind of how would you, yeah, at a high level, kind of where how are you seeing and thinking about this whole space today? Yeah, yeah. I think obviously super excited about crypto and a lot of the momentum that's driving it. I think I might come from a more muted perspective than many of my colleagues and my friends in the space, just because I've been through several cycles now and the promises of crypto uh, remain (laughs) roughly more or less similar through each cycle. But I would say that some of the most exciting things to me in terms of what is really driving crypto and various trends in the space are, I think, number one, more smart developers are entering the space than ever before, like orders of magnitude more than the previous cycle, basically. And a lot of this is due to, for instance, like the success of SBF and Alameda. Like I know like a lot of quant friends who are, you know, in their like early mid-20s or even late 20s starting to move over and build like really good DeFi products. You're seeing quite a few engineers from Google, Facebook, and top startups looking into the crypto space and looking to build out products on the infrastructure side. And you're getting like real talents and muscle behind crypto. And I'd say like even like if you kind of segment it on a generational level, 
Like it just feels like for Gen Z in particular, like crypto and Web3 is like the cool, hip, trendy place to build it. And the more builders that we have just actively working in the space, the more shots on goal that we can potentially have in building the next FTX or Airbnb or Stripe or whatnot. So that's something that's incredibly exciting. I would say also in terms of crypto adoption, this is also a generational thing where, for instance, like more than half of Gen Z holds crypto as part of their overall portfolio. And you know, they're a lot more open to experimenting with, with Web3 and downloading a MetaMask and doing uh, like exploring Uniswap and this whole host of DeFi products and like going into crypto games and buying NFTs and whatnot. And a lot of it is because they are online native and they kind of they get the overarching value prop. Like I would say that was like one of the main criticisms of like crypto to date, which is like, you know, there are some overarching like philosophical value props that are driving this entire movement. But how does that translate to the overall public? And I would say it kind of translates from the bottom up where it happens, the Gen Z side, and then slowly they make it cool for millennials to participate and then moves on upwards from there. Yeah. But we are seeing like real grassroots changes happening. So I think it's, it's an inevitability. Yeah, that lines up with what we're seeing on our side too. Like I was at a South by and I met an engineer that I worked with in hardware. And he was saying that uh, Web3 is like a black hole for talent now. Like talent goes in and it does not come back out. Like, and it is pulling its real people. Even he, he came from working on devices you hold in your hand. Now he's picking his head up for crypto opportunities. And do you think that the amount of talent being funneled into crypto is a hedge against a crypto winter in some sense? Like, can there be a crypto winter with so many more people working on it? Like the shots on goal, as you say, like, yeah, yeah. I think that's an interesting question. I think ultimately, like crypto winters are driven by external, often macroeconomic forces and forces that are kind of endemic to the way that some of these cryptocurrencies are structured, like economically and uh, just overall kind of economic momentum. So I'd say that's a little bit separate from the actual builder momentum that's happening. But another thing that I will say is, okay, so suppose we ultimately enter another bear market and not saying that that's going to be the case. I know there's like the super cycle narrative that is incredibly popular, but you know, hypothetically, if that were the case, what will happen? And I think that's yet to be seen, but I do see a lot of resilience in this round of builders where, you know, compared to the previous cycle, they're not just in it for the money, right? They're not there because they can potentially do a token sale and then, you know, try to flip it and like do like they're there to build because they actually care about the ethos, uh, for instance, for DeFi of building an open and transparent and trustless financial system. They always say that talent is objected to a big problem and other smart people trying to solve that problem. And we're seeing that more and more on the crypto side. And what could be a bigger problem than building a new financial system that is better, more efficient, open, and again, transparent than the previous one? Man, yeah, that's exciting. I'm excited by your optimism too. Thank you for being so generous with your time. I got two kind of lightning round questions for you before we let you go. Anybody, any founder or company that you're particularly excited about that you'd like to shout out or or just something on the horizon that you're looking forward to right now? 
in industry? Yeah. I mean, I would say this is kind of the easy answer, but uh, Sam Bankman Freed, uh, SBF, has been doing some very amazing things with FTX. They've grown the company phenomenally since inception. And then Pure Disclosure Sequoia is an investor in FTX. But I think in addition to the amount of tremendous growth, they've had the willingness to work with regulators and come to an agreement on a better regulatory framework to govern these kinds of financial products and systems moving forward has been very inspirational and is something that probably the crypto space certainly needs. And Brian, obviously from Layer Zero, very good friends with him, but also in just watching the growth of that company over the past year or so and being in the Bahamas and seeing the company uh, kind of work on the ground floor. And these guys, they work nonstop. Like their day is like get up at 6 a.m., play around a basketball, shoot some hoops, and then go straight into the office, like shower off, go straight in the office, and then work until they pass out and then do it all over again. It's amazing to see the, the company and the culture that he's built there. Wow, that is, yeah. No, that's not an easy thing. And then a book or a podcast that you're listening to or reading right now that you're particularly inspired by? I would say two podcasts in particular. One of them is the Unchained podcast by Laura Shin. And there is a bi-weekly segment called The Chopping Block by two Dragonfly GPs, Hasi Qureshi and Tom and Robert Leshner from Compound and Tarun Chitra from Gauntlet. Very deep insider's perspective into what is relevant in the crypto space. Mm. And they're coming at it from a very well-informed and smart angle. So I would definitely recommend checking that out. And the other is escaping me right now, but I will get back to you on that one. No, I appreciate it. That's a good plug as it is. Well, man, I appreciate you sharing so much time and, and so much of your story with us. I know whenever you're ready to pull back the curtain on whatever you're working on at Sequoia, it's going to be huge. So I'm going to be looking out for it. But thanks again for joining us, Dan. I appreciate it. And uh, great to catch up with you as always. The Gradients is brought to you by Build Talent. To find out more about us, head to buildtalent.io and make sure to search for The Gradients in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Click follow so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And on behalf of everyone here at Build, thanks for listening.